I'm now near the end of a very slow reading of a book by columnist George Will. The book is titled The Conservative Sensibility, and it is clearly the design of the author to define what conservatism was at the founding of our nation. Mr. Will is displeased with what conservatism has become, and he is hoping that maybe a few of his readers will choose to be honest traditionalists. In the course of his book, George Will makes it clear that he is not a Christian believer. He acknowledges that some of the ideas or ideals of our nation are more strongly supported with Christian convictions than without them, but he correctly reminds his readers that some of our founding fathers were not Christian believers. After all, Thomas Jefferson, who lived uh, just across the mountains a ways, Jefferson published his own Bible. It was called Jefferson's Bible. He removed from it all the parts that his deism did not allow him to accept. But listen to what George Will writes on page 458 of this book. The most consequential life in human history was lived 21 centuries ago in the eastern portion of the Roman Empire by a person who never traveled more than 100 miles from his birthplace, never held public office, never wrote a book, and died at the hands of the state in his early 30s. End of quote. Now that's not the most intelligent and accurate description of Jesus Christ, but George Will is correct in saying that the life of Jesus was the most consequential life lived in all of human history. And then Mr. Will writes this, the second most potent life was Mohammed. Well, it is beyond dispute that Mohammed's life was potent. He and his followers conquered nations that had been mildly Christianized. There are now 1.8 billion Muslims, making up 24% of world population. A potent life indeed. But I have another candidate for the second most potent life in world history. My nominee is a man named Paul. He was the sworn enemy of Christ. He was determined to do away with this pesky upstart prophet that showed up there in Palestine. But this man was confronted by Christ, and then he was called and commissioned by that same Christ. Paul did travel widely in the civilized world of his day. He did not take up a sword as did Mohammed. He did not recruit and train military units. No, Paul was a preacher, a herald of a message of good news about Jesus Christ. He spread this message in major population centers of the Roman Empire. Many people believed Paul's message and made commitments to Christ uh, that uh, Paul had preached to them. And then Paul gathered these disciples in congregations that met to worship God and to pray and to sing about Jesus in much the same way that we have this evening. Paul was a writer. He wrote this early Christian document 
that we call Ephesians, and I ask you to please follow in the reading of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. If you're close to a Bible, you can follow in that Bible. If you wish just to listen uh, to the reading, uh, there is uh, a power, I believe, in the reading of Scripture with no human comment. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. Again, our focus will be verses 8, 9, and 10 this evening, but let me begin with a question. Is the message of the Bible simple and easy to understand, or is the Bible complicated, perplexing, sometimes confusing? Let me repeat the question. Is the message of the Bible simple, easy to understand, or is the Bible sometimes complicated, perplexing, even confusing? And the answer is this. Some parts of the Bible are a bit complicated. Some parts are perplexing, and there's some parts that leave me wanting to scratch my brain. Scratching my head is not enough with some parts of the Bible. I want to get inside my head and scratch my brain. The latter chapters of the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, have never been a sermon series for me, and I intend that they never will be a sermon series for this preacher. But, my friends, the parts of the Bible that are most important for us to understand, the parts of Scripture that clearly tell us who we are, who God is, and what God has done to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, from a real devil, those most important parts are written down with a clarity, with specifics, with appealing, attractive words that encourage us to understand and to believe. And that description of the most important parts fits into Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And here are the three lines of thought that we'll pursue this evening. Number one, I want us to think about a marvelous fact stated. Secondly, the marvelous fact explained. And thirdly, the marvelous fact expanded. 
First of all, then, a marvelous fact is stated. Paul says at the opening of verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. Now, as Paul penned this document, he was not a careful polemicist as he is in Galatians. He was not a deliberate, systematic theologian as he is in writing the book of Romans. In fact, the word justify, one of the commentators pointed this out uh, this past week in my study, the word justify or justification, a favorite word of Paul, is not found in Ephesians. There's no mention specifically of justification. Now, in this document, more than polemicist, more than theologian, Paul is a worshiper. And I used the phrase several months ago when we were looking at chapter 1, I referred to a gush, a gush of praise that pours out of Paul because all of verses 13 to 14 of chapter 1 is a single sentence. Well, some of that gushiness, if there is such a word, some of that gushiness shows up here in chapter 2, and maybe you noted, as I read, that at the end of verse 5, we have, by grace you have been saved. And, and I believe Paul, if he were speaking it, if he were uh, reading this letter, he, he would have said it that way, by grace you have been saved. And then he finishes his thought in verses 6 to 7, and then settles down a little bit and comes back to verse 8 and says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, the verb tense here in verse 8, by grace you have been saved, is significant. It's what we call a perfect passive verb. The perfect tense points to something that is done and completed in the past with results into the, into the present. It's something that was finished, it was effectively completed, but it didn't just stay in the past, it continues, the force and power continues into the present. And so you could read, you have been saved with the result that you really are now saved. And if someone says, hey Paul, what about the fruits? What about the practical results of being saved? Paul says, I'm going to get to that shortly. But right now, I simply want to underscore in bold letters that we are the objects of grace and that our salvation will never be reversed. For by grace you have been saved and it will last, my friends. It's not going to be undone. And then the passive voice makes clear that in this action, we were acted upon. We have been saved, and we did not do it ourselves. No, it was by grace. Now, we often use the word grace as a synonym for God's love or a synonym for God's goodness, and that's not wrong. But I'm persuaded that the word grace is a word of divine action. Grace is not just what God is. Grace is what God does. Grace is what He accomplishes. There are a number of examples in Paul's writings that would demonstrate this, but I've had to be very choosy. So let me give you just one example of the way Paul uses the word grace. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared. Ah, 
The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. You see, there's action. Grace effects wonderful things. Grace is not a vague blanket of spirituality that passes over us as we engage in self-focused meditation. Grace is God's rescuing activity. It's His rescuing activity delivering us from what Paul has clearly described in verses 1 to 3. Dead in trespasses and sins. Controlled by uh, the evil power of Satan himself. uh, Following the course of this world, the, the spirit of the age. But then this marvelous fact stated includes the expression, through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, is Paul intending to give a slight qualification by saying, by grace you have been saved through faith? In other words, should we think, okay, grace accomplishes 98% of our salvation, and we we contribute 2% by our believing. Is that what we're to think? regarding faith. Well, it is not. It is not. And I I don't think I can do any better than to read a brief part of one of the books that I treasure. Um, I had a friend years ago see my copy of Redemption, Accomplish, and Applaud. It It was a paperback. It was falling apart. And he was a bookbinder. And he said, Pastor Randy, give me that. Let, let, me, let me take that with me. He worked for a bookbinder. And he sent back my redemption accomplishment applied in this beautiful red library buckram. That, that's what it is, library buckram. Well, listen to John Murray. It is to be remembered that the power of faith does not reside in itself Faith is not something that merits the favor of God. All the power unto salvation resides in the Savior, as one has aptly and truly stated the case. And here, Professor Murray is quoting Warfield. As one has aptly stated the case, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. Strictly speaking, it is not faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. Faith unites us to Christ in the bonds of abiding attachment and trust. And it is this union which ensures that the saving power, grace, and virtue of the Savior becomes operative in in the believer. Now listen, the specific character of faith is that it looks away from itself. It looks away from itself and finds its whole interest and object in Christ. He is the absorbing preoccupation of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. A marvelous fact stated. But secondly, the marvelous fact is explained in verses 8b and 9. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, one could easily conclude that Paul's stated marvelous fact is more than sufficient to 
rule out human effort or merit. But Paul knows how slow some of us are to learn grace alone. And so, and so he spells it out more clearly. And there are two points that I want to underscore uh, in verse 8b. Number one, and this might, this might be a bit of a surprise to a few of you. Ephesians 8b is not teaching that faith is the gift of God. It can be argued that genuine faith in Christ really is the gift of God, and that the working of divine grace enables us to believe, and in fact Paul does say that in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. But that's not the point of Ephesians 2.8b. The grammar of 8b is very clear. What is not our own, what is not our doing, and what is the gift of God is by grace you have been saved. We are saved by grace, and so it cannot be by our own doing, whatever personal actions we may take. Faith is not the gift in 8b. But the second thing, just to briefly underscore in verse 8b, is that it emphasizes the fact that it is God's gift, this salvation. You know, in our English language, we emphasize a word often with the inflection of our voice, by, by lowering our voice or, or decreasing our volume. If, if we're writing a letter, you know, we might, we might uh, put something in italics. Or, or even put it in bold, all caps. Uh, we, we have different ways of emphasizing a part of a statement. In the Greek New Testament, the part of a statement that is emphasized is, is often front-loaded. Okay? It's put at the beginning of a statement. And that's what we have here. And what Paul is saying in 8b is not, it's the gift of God... But he's saying salvation is God's gift. It is something that God himself showers upon us. And then Paul's explanation continues in verse 9. The exclusion of human effort is more specific by Paul saying, not a result of works. You might know that in other letters of Paul, he will often refer to works of the law. That happens in Romans and Galatians. Uh, he will refer to works of the law because in those letters he is especially concerned to communicate to his fellow Jews who prided themselves on their obedience, not just to any moral standard, but their obedience to the law of Moses. That was God's law. And so Paul is often concerned in those places to say, not by works of the law. But Ephesians, that church, was made up dominantly of Gentiles. And yet, my friends, the tendency to boast is not peculiarly Jewish. We, we can't read the New Testament. We can't read Romans and Galatians and say, well, you know, <laughs> too bad for those old Jews back there, but 
That's not a problem for us. Oh, it's very much a problem for us, isn't it? You know, this past week I was made aware of a person who had made a very bad use of Facebook. The person's words on Facebook were cutting. They were cruel toward another person. And I became aware of the way this person had used words on Facebook, and, and uh, I, I was deeply agitated that someone would use words like that toward another human being. And then, I got this information on Monday, and then by Monday afternoon, and even into Tuesday, I suddenly realized how much I had been congratulating myself for not being on Facebook. <laughs> and, and I felt so silly and, and, and so spiritually stupid when I, when I realized what was going on in my mind. And, and the fact is, it, you, you, you fall into pride, you, you fall into self-exaltation, by using Facebook, and you easily fall into self-exaltation when you say, I'm not going to use Facebook. We are experts. We are experts. We're very good at our boasting. And the saving grace of God is inexorably determined to kill our boastful attitude. The grace of God declares war on our tendency to boast. And my friends, God is going to win that war. So we have considered a marvelous fact stated. We've considered the marvelous fact explained, but now thirdly, the marvelous fact is expanded in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Please note that verse 10 does not begin with but. It begins with four, because verse 10 really is expanding what Paul has said so clearly, so carefully in verses 8 and 9. You see, verse 10 is sometimes taken to say, but be sure to give works their proper place. Well, yes, there is something crucial about good works that Paul has to say in verse 10. But he tells us that, he tells us that crucial truth in the process of expanding what he's saying about the marvels of God's grace. For, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. And the word translated workmanship is the Greek word poima. And maybe you've heard in the past someone reading this text and, and translating it, we are God's poems. Well, that's not really the point. This Greek word, poimai, is used several times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the creating work of God, the work that God did in making the world. And the only other place that we have this word used by the Apostle Paul is in Romans 1.20, God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived by the things made. It's the only other Pauline usage. So, really what Paul is saying is, we are his workmanship, 
We are His creations created in Christ. It's, it's, it's piling up again language and thought. We are His creations because created in Jesus Christ. Now, I know that we sometimes use creation language to refer to someone that has an elevated ability. We may say that an artist or a musician is creative. Uh, and that's, that's a proper use of the word. Now, we say that a, a person is a creative decorator. This, this man or this woman can, can take a room that's plain and unattractive and move the furniture around and put a few things on the wall, and wow, it looks like a completely different room. Now, that's a proper use of the word creative. But a literal creation of something out of nothing is a divine work, and a divine work that only God Himself can do. If the rescue of our souls from sin really is a creation, it must be exclusively a divine work. And Paul adds, created in Christ Jesus. So he's again including the emphasis on union with Christ that we saw back in chapter 1. Now, indeed, all of this creating work that Paul talks about here will result in good works. And the reason Paul can say that these works are good, listen carefully, the reason he can say that they are good is that they are the product of grace. It's not just grit your teeth and and do the right thing. I mean, there may be a a place in the Christian life for sometimes gritting your teeth. Uh, I'm not saying that that, that's never a part of Christian experience. But but this is not just grit your teeth and and make yourself do the right thing. No, no, this, this is a good work. This is a work that grace itself produces. I can only say, I can only say something brief about the way Paul ends verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. Workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I, I have not been able to give kind of attention to that closing phrase that I would enjoy giving to it. But this is my best present judgment. This is my best present understanding of what Paul intends God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm persuaded that Paul is carrying over into the end of verse 10 the the language of election and the language of predestination that he emphasizes at the opening of chapter 1. So that what he is saying is that the good works, the good works to which we give ourselves in our families, the good works to which we give ourselves in our communities, the good works to which we give ourselves in the church, they are things which God has determined and sovereignly planned that we do. And my friends, when you find yourself in a situation that is not pleasant, and 
and you think, how did I get here? How did I allow somebody to, to strap me with this? Like keeping the nursery on Sunday morning at Grace Church? How did I get into this? Here's what Ephesians 2.10 tells you. God planned it. God ordered that you be in that place of service. And that just means that with all the things that we're able to do by God's grace, in the end we take our little crowns and we cast them at His feet. I want to close this evening by speaking directly to those of you who claim Christ as yours. And then I want to speak directly to those who are not yet claiming Christ. I've been blessed with three mentors in my life. My dad, Julie's dad, and a preacher named Al Martin. And Pastor Martin has certainly influenced my views of preaching more than any other human that I know. And I love his summary of preaching. He says that preaching is concerned with what and so what. What does the text say? Whatever the text is, what does the text say? Okay, answer that. Now, so what? What does the text, understanding what it says, require of me? And I'm limiting us this evening to just two applications uh, because of the preciousness of time. And one application, again, to those who are already belonging to Christ, to those who do not yet belong to Him. To Christian believers, I want to ask you this one question. Are not the truths, are not the truths of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, a potent dose of spiritual medicine for many of the spiritual weaknesses and gaps that keep us from growing in Christ. Do you ever, do you ever talk to yourself and say, what's wrong with you? Why, why haven't you grown more? Why, why haven't you made more progress? I have that conversation often. And, and believe me, friends, I've, I've, been, I've been blessed of God to be, able, to, to be able to give my life to the things that we're talking about tonight. I remember years ago, a young man who was a part of Trinity Church, he was having struggles in his job. He's very discontent. He came to my study. That's when I lived in Franklin County. He came to my study, and uh, in talking about his job and his frustrations, I, I said, well, well, Bobby, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your life? He looked around at my bookshelves and he said, oh, pastor, I want to do what you do. And he meant it. He meant it. He had a heart that would have loved doing what his pastor did. But when, my friends, we find ourselves asking those questions of ourselves, 
What's wrong with you? Your pathetic selfishness, your self-pity, your unthankful spirit. Why, why, why are you envious of others? What's wrong with you, man? What's wrong with you, woman? When you start having a conversation like that, won't it help to turn to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 and read it carefully and really believe it? And say, I've been saved. God has saved me by His grace. And it's entirely His doing. It's only by faith. No, no works of mine created in Christ Jesus. A pattern of good works that God has laid out for me. Oh, what, what marvels to a sinner like me. And on Thursday morning, that, that ought to help you a little bit. Start living that day for the Lord. Now secondly, to those not yet in Christ, I want to close in a way that might seem to contradict our text and contradict what I've said about it. What is very much on my heart grows out of a brief conversation that I had with a friend in recent days. This friend has a close relative who is a slave to booze, not an uncommon issue in our day, someone enslaved to alcohol. And in talking to this friend about, you know, what he might say to that family member, I remembered something that is said by the prophet Daniel. Daniel has become a respected advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonian monarch has had a disturbing dream. He's dreamed of a great tree that had grown and become dominant in its natural setting, but then the tree was cut down. Uh, with nothing left but a stump. The king doesn't know what this dream means, and he knows that Daniel is gifted by God to interpret dreams. Daniel is called on to give a reliable interpretation, and I want you to listen. Daniel says, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And then Daniel says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. Then you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom He will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Now listen to what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. 
Break off your sins. And I've read that part of the book of Daniel this evening because my heart has become focused in recent hours for some of you who perhaps are holding on to some pet sin. There is some pet sin that you're holding on to. And the grace of God is at work all around you. The salvation by the grace of God through faith in Christ was preached clearly and powerfully by our pastor this morning over there in that larger room. You're surrounded by God's grace, by His saving grace in the preaching of the gospel. But there's a sin that you've embraced and made a idol of. And I want to say to you, break off your abuse of prescription drugs. Are you doping yourself up in an unlawful way? My friends, stop it. Break off your slavery to internet porn. Am I talking to a young man, to an old man, who's finding a way into that world of darkness and devilish possession and power? Oh, my friends, stop it. Break it off. Break off your arrogant inspection of other people where you always find their faults to make yourself feel better about you. Break off your worship of financial security. Break off your worship of ease. You know, we've had the blessing not too long ago of hearing Pastor Hendricks. And I remember very early in the history of what we called Trinity Fellowship, Pastor Hendricks came up from Mebane and preached to us. And he preached powerfully, like he always has. And you think he was potent a few months ago. You, you should have heard him when he was in his 20s. I mean, what a preacher. And I'll never forget one night when Pastor Hendricks had preached, there was a man there who said, I can't live that way. That's just too hard. Now, Maybe Pastor Hendricks, you know, didn't cover everything with gospel encouragement as he should have. Uh, when I was a young preacher, I, I'm, I often failed to do that. But is there someone tonight who's saying, I can't, I can't live that way? My friend, you can by grace. You can. You can, by grace, freely give yourself to Christ. You can fall at his feet and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I want to be your servant. I want to live for you. And you fall at his feet and you pray to him that way and he will hear you and receive you as his own. The elders have 
given me liberty to pray, and with this prayer, our service will be concluded. Would you join me, please? Oh God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of abundant grace, the God who raised up Daniel and sent him to preach a sermon to a pagan monarch, the God who has been with us today, gathering with us in these rooms here at Grace Church. We thank you, Father. We thank you for your saving grace. And we thank you that many of us have experienced its saving power. And we plead, Father, we plead for anyone this evening who is being kept from Christ because of some peculiarly dominant and potent sin. Oh God, tear that sin from their hearts and set up your own gracious rule and bring them to find delight and joy in Christ as he offers himself upon the cross for sinners such as are gathered here this evening. Bless us with your Spirit's presence, we ask, in the remaining part of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. If anyone wishes to speak with me, I'm going to remain here at the front. Pastor Charlie is here. Our elders, other Christians here would be very happy to have a word with anyone who feels you need some spiritual help. God bless you.